These Sunday nights we are looking at Paul's second letter to Timothy, the first chapter. And tonight we come to verse 8. So, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God. 2 Timothy 1.8 Now if a, a person has never been ashamed of the gospel, then the reason isn't that he is an exceptionally good Christian, but that his understanding of the gospel has never been clear. You know how the scriptures begin. They begin with an account of creation, God making everything out of nothing in the space of six days, and that very good. And then you know how the New Testament begins. The New Testament begins with a genealogy of many, many names, difficult names to pronounce. And then it announces that Jesus of Nazareth was born of Mary when she was a virgin. You understand also the audacious claims of Christianity. The Bible tells us that the God who made the world is a personal God, but that he is also triune. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And these three are one God. The Son of God and the Father and the Spirit are responsible for creating the universe And Jesus came into this world then through Mary being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, while continuing to be God, laying aside none of his divine attributes whatsoever, he rather added to his deity all of human nature so that he became true man and true God in one indivisible person, forever. Then this God-man offered himself as a sacrifice in the place of all the people of God. He took our condemnation so that God could remain just, and yet he could declare that all those that were condemned by their sin and defiance of God could be pardoned because Jesus had taken the condemnation and the defiance in his own body on the cross. That's the message of Christianity. Jesus rose on the third day. And after 40 days then, meeting with people, talking with them, small groups, 500 people, he ascended to heaven where he has all authority in heaven and earth. And he reigns over his people and he's building his church now. He's spreading the kingdom of God through all the continents of the world and he's filling the world imperceptibly and steadily with the glory of who he is and what he has done. And one day he's coming again and he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to judge all mankind. There's going to be the great bifurcation of the destinies of all men and women. Um, And that will be in either heaven or hell. Now that's the gospel that's revealed in the world, to the world in the Bible And it is believed by every true Christian. It was mocked and scorned by the people of 
Paul's day, pagans branded it atheism because there, there was no idols, no visible form of this God whatsoever. And the Jews hated it as licentiousness because the uh, civil laws and uh, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were no longer kept. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the heart of the message that it preached. It was an enormous stumbling block to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Greeks. When Paul explained to a monarch then the gospel and went through his own testimony and explained it to him, reasoning with him of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, the monarch mocked him and said, much learning, because he seemed such a learned man, much learning had made him mad. He'd lost his senses. So today when people ask us, did Jesus walk on water? Did the hammerhead float? Is there a real hell? We say, yeah, we believe uh, all these things. Then they scorn such a faith that it has no entitlement to put these views forward on a university campus. Young people are under pressure then to feel ashamed of Christianity. Of course, not watered-down modernistic and uh, liberal religion, which uh, removes the supernatural and the miraculous and the redemptive and teaches merely the brotherhood of God and then the fatherhood of uh, the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. And uh, there's nothing in that then which causes an offence to men and women. They use God words, but they bleed those God words of uh, their life and their vitality and their plain meaning. The liberal says, uh, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but I interpret it to mean he didn't rise physically from the dead. But concerning the faith that you find in the Anglican Church in the 39 Articles, or that's found in the Westminster Confession or the 1689 Confession that we believe. Um, many people are ashamed of it. That's why they don't profess it and believe it. Well, we believe it. We're unashamed of testifying about our Lord. So let's begin then uh, with this passage before us, these words I've read in your hearing, by asking the question, what makes uh, a person feel ashamed. Well, suppose, let me give you some examples. A boy brags to his friends that he can outrun the skinny new kid in the neighborhood. So the gang set up a race once around the block. And uh, both boys have a look. They walk the route and they see where the obstacles are and where the uh, turns have to be made. And then they line up and all the neighborhood boys are, and girls are watching. And someone says, on your marks, get set, go. And the bragging boy is simply left in the dust. The skinny new kid, he's 40 yards ahead of him. And he's uh, sitting down and talking to his friends when the braggart finally crosses the finishing line. He feels ashamed. He feels a fool. 
Or suppose there is someone in your school you don't like and he has a dad in jail. And suppose you can hint at that or even say it and make fun of him and call him names. And when he irritates you, say, your father's a crook. And you boast about your father that he's a successful financial officer in a big firm. And then one day you go home to terrible news that your dad has been arrested and charged with embezzling hundreds of thousands of pounds. And the next day you don't want to go to school because you're so ashamed, both of your father and of yourself. Or suppose you have a, a lot of emphasis on how you look. Uh, your hair has to be just this way, and your clothes have to be in perfect taste, and you're invited to a party, and uh, you check with people whom you think are reliable advisors about what to wear, what are people going to dress, is it going to be a casual or a formal occasion. When you get there, you realize you've been set up, and you're dressed in a totally unsuitable way for the party. You stick out like a sore thumb. They are so casual and you so overdressed and you are so embarrassed. Uh, you don't want to go in the room and join the rest of them. Or suppose you have a part in a play and just a small part because you are naturally a nervous person and not very good at acting. Just two lines at some juncture, key lines and you memorize them and the play begins and your heart is pounding in your chest and the audience is large, the family are there Everyone is doing beautifully and there's such a uh, high standard and the audience is drawn in and there's laughter where there should be laughter. A new moment comes nearer and nearer and at that moment you freeze. You try to say the, 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 the two lines. Everyone's looking at you. Nothing comes out. Someone whispers your lines. You still can't say them. And somehow they get around it. Somebody makes up something and you limp off the stage. You want to leave the planet. You feel so ashamed. We all know things like that. We all know what it is to be ashamed. What would keep you from situations like that? Well, one answer would be stronger legs. That would keep you from losing a race and not be shamed by the skinny new kid. And a more honest dad who never embezzled so you wouldn't be ashamed of him and better counsel from a true friend who would tell you exactly what you should wear for the party. And better nerves in front of a group would have let you remember your lines and speak them clearly so people at the back could hear what you were saying. In other words, you can avoid shame if you and your family and your friends are honest and true and humble. So what will keep you from being ashamed of the gospel? Well, two things can do that. The fact that you know it's true. You know it's true. You don't need to embellish it or distort it or deny it. You're seeking to understand the Bible, the hermeneutics of where is poetry in scripture and where is plain fact and the meaning of words and to adore the God then who inspired it that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life 
And then there is this fact that this message explained, understood, received, believed, confessed before the world is actually very powerful. That it has divine power unto our salvation. It was received by a torturer and a killer named Saul of Tarsus. And under God, it just changed his life radically. He became a new creation. He became a humble man and holy and prayerful uh, with a servant's heart. He became the happiest and sweetest man in the world. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, he told men. And he was frequently rejoicing. And he was telling other people that they should rejoice in the Lord. Always. And the gospel made him a contented man in whatever state he was in. The power of God did this to him and to millions like him. The power of God has given us more than what Adam lost by his rebellion. It's been restored through the second Adam coming into the world and vastly increased then that we have more blessings than our father Adam lost. So there's nothing for Timothy to be ashamed of in the gospel. Uh, Paul had surely spoken to Timothy and he told him when they went to Philippi, the first three people, Greeks like your father, that were converted. One uh, uh, a woman who was uh, in the hands of pimps who got her to... Uh, make prophecies and tell the fortunes of people who came to them and gave them the money for it. An evil spirit was in her. And then there was a very different woman called Lydia, an entrepreneur, a businesswoman, quite brilliant in all she did. A trader in purple dyes and cloths. And then there was the Roman governor of... A of a prison in Philippi, a brutalized military man. And all of them were transformed for the better by the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit. They became better husbands and better wives and mothers and fathers, sweeter neighbors and workmates. And that gospel spread then. It spread to Athens and it spread to Corinth and Thessalonica and what changes were wrought? The lot of the newborn child. The sex trade weakened. Slavery steadily undermined. The lot of women pervasively improved. Education, hospitals, the protection of the young, more humane prisons, democracy. All these institutions were given a boost when the gospel put down its roots in society. And there were congregations Thousands of them, like our own, throughout the land. Is it only one, or are there two countries out of two dozen Muslim countries, that is where Islam is predominant? Two, maybe only one, is a democracy. But where the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, there's true political and economic freedom. We've seen it this Last week, come we, a great debate about bombing Syria and people there speaking and strong feelings expressed. You don't get that in Islamic countries, except one perhaps, 
The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel brings liberty where the Son of God is. He makes us free. Indeed. Who could be ashamed of it? Let the atheist name five women whose lives have been delivered from the sex industry by, by the power of atheism. But uh, we know hundreds of people in Singapore and South Korea and Philippines, India, America, Wales, whose lives have been transformed by the power of God through believing the gospel. Their lives have been put back together again. Omnipotent, redeeming grace has worked there. And it's lifted up women and children and men. Their lives were despairing muddles before they heard the gospel. They found a, a purpose in life. They discovered what life was all about. They could well, plug into the power of God to help them to live new lives. I am a debtor to the gospel. I'm ready to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. So then, secondly, let's see what is it to testify about our Lord. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. All right, you see our text. Verse 8, what is it? What do we testify about him? Well, two main things, really. The first is the resurrection. That's the foundation on which the New Testament is built. And the glory of that is that the resurrection of Christ uh, doesn't belong to the world of hypotheses. It doesn't belong to an encyclopedia of, uh, of realistic ideas. It doesn't belong to the sphere of dogma. It belongs to the sphere of facts, the facticity of the resurrection. Paul lists the names in 1 Corinthians 15, the lists of the names of a number of the men who met him whose lives were changed by him. And he says, and there are 500 more, and they're still alive today. And uh, they, they'd love to describe to you what happened. The encounter, you see, wasn't then just uh, one or two women in, in the twilight or in the middle of the night who saw a shadowy figure and they heard a voice. It wasn't like that at all. There were 500 people in, in a day, a long afternoon, the grapevine had said that Jesus would come to Galilee and they went there. People we know from the gospel, centurions and Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus and uh, the parents of a boy out of whom he cast uh, a demon and the widow of Nain's son. And, uh, all those lovely people. And they all went and they all went. His flock, his followers. They, know, they knew that he had been killed in a despicable way. But now they'd heard that he was raised from the dead and they were longing to meet him. And uh, they did meet him. And he spent time with them all, like the queen in a garden party in Buckingham Palace and she um, talks to this one and that one and she has a few hours. She doesn't hurry away. She doesn't give a little glimpse behind a curtain. They think they've seen her. Was it her or was it a, a lady in waiting? No, she's there. And they see her close up and they say things like, oh, she's much shorter than I thought she was. They see her. They hear her voice. She's interested in them. And that was what happened in Galilee to the 500. God raised him from the dead. God showed his superior power and guardian grace. God 
vindicated, incarnate love, so that the Son of God arose. And that's the great guarantee of our resurrection. It's a model of our resurrection. Because he lives, we're going to live also. And so in moments of doubt, we have to go back time and again to those last chapters in in the Gospels, to the empty tomb, to the eruption into history and in time and space on this planet of the power and the goodness of God in the vindication of his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's the first thing that we bear witness to. We tell people Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And uh, that is uh, undeniable. And we have to say it. And then secondly, we testify to our living relationship with God. We don't live vicarious spiritual lives. We don't live it through our parents or our grandparents. They were Christians and we sort of shelter through their name and their achievements. We don't live through the lives of the people in the Bible. We don't say, oh, Samson was strong and David killed Goliath and Elijah had fire from heaven when he prayed and so on. We don't, uh, when we finish college, uh, go off somewhere uh, far from a university town and we look back in longing to the days that we spent in university and the happy friendships that we had there and the spiritual contacts that we had with uh, our buddies, our girlfriends and our boyfriends in the Christian Union. We have an ongoing relationship. That relationship lives day by day and when we're in our 70s and in our 80s we still have a living relationship with the God that we knew all those years ago. We have an assurance of his love for us. We have a present experience of his goodness still every day. We have the experience of answered prayer. We have an experience of grace that helps us in a time of need. We have uh, strength given to us just outside of ourselves. Strength uh, physically and and morally and psychologically. We have uh, known times when our worst fears were not realized. And real blessings that God poured down upon us. And so we bear witness to that. We bear witness to his resurrection. And we bear witness to our experience of the goodness of God to us day by day. I've cried to God and God has answered. Just as Elijah cried to God on Mount Carmel. And God heard and answered him. God is good to us. God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. If it's... In the heavenlies, if it's in glory, then it's here too. Because we are the body joined to the head. Where the head is, the body is. Where the body is, the head is. There is so much in the world that I can doubt today. I can doubt dark matter. I can doubt black holes. I can't doubt the goodness of God. I can't doubt the love of God. I can't doubt that God answers prayer. And so we testify. We testify 
to the resurrection of Christ and the grace of God as our daily experience. And we're never ashamed of these things. We're always ready to speak of these things when the conversation turns around quite suddenly as the coffee break and somebody says something about a program last night or whatever it was. Most of us know times when we've given a word for our saviour. You've read um, Mary Beaky's account there of sitting on the train at Shrewsbury and meeting a man going to visit a friend who was a student here and how she talks to him and she talks to him. Has he read the Bible? He, he, Samson, he liked that story. He read it once. She tells him about Esther. That's her favorite book. And she tells him what the story of Esther is. She witnesses to him. She takes down his uh, email address and then she's going to send a, a book to him. She was ready on that journey here. But we also know of wasted opportunities when we were called. When we didn't speak. When we weren't close to God and so we weren't close to men either. Because that's the only structure in which you can share your faith. We needed to take advantage of a providential moment when God put us then for an hour or two with another person. Or when we were in a seminar and religion was announced and we stumbled and babbled. Well now, how can we be unashamed of the gospel? And I've just chosen five things from the New Testament that will help us. It helps me, and I hope it will help you. Firstly, we are always to set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in our lives. That's what I read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. The most powerful antidote to shame is being in a right relationship with our Lord. We set him apart. We set him apart from every other enthusiasm. Our love of music and our love of sport and our hobbies and our friendships. Many of them so good and so worthwhile. But Christ is different from all of that. He has a unique place He's Lord of everything. He's Lord of every interest we have. He's Lord of our hours, our evenings. He reigns over us. He sits on the throne of our hearts. And all is well between him and us. When we sin, we confess it to him. We're always confessing the same narrow circle of sins that we are particularly guilty of. We never stop saying, Lord, there I go again. The same old sin. I'm so sorry, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. And in the simplicity of saying a prayer like that, mercy comes to us. And and we are pardoned. Now, you see where I'm going now. You think that witnessing is a matter of a striking ploy of dramatic words and activity. That it's a matter of technique. It's methodology. It's a matter of knowledge and experience and skill. But there is something immeasurably more important than all those things, and it's this. Are you right with God? Because if we aren't, then there's no possibility 
of being a fisher of men. No possibility of having an effective witness in a particular structure of the office, the class, the bus. And the reason that we are incompetent in our witnessing is not that we don't have some dramatic hook to hang our words on. It is not that we haven't done a course in public speaking, that we haven't done a weekend conference with uh, somebody as brilliant as Becky Pippert to tell us about uh, witnessing, or that we're not quick-witted enough. We're not right with God. And the way to sort things out is to go back to where things have gone wrong in your life. And acknowledge that and confess that to him. Wordsworth once gave a famous definition of poetry. He said poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Now, if I was a lecturer in English, then I would have a seminar group and I'd ask you if you thought that was right. You can dispute it. But I'm saying it's essential to the Christian testimony that it has to be the vital, natural overflow of very powerful affections, the religious affections. Testifying comes out of what a Christian is. And what we need is not to get our methods right and tick all the testifying boxes. It's getting your relationship with the Lord right. And then there's something more. Second thing I want to say to you, in these five things I'm telling you now about Uh, not being ashamed to bear witness, we must have a good conscience. That again, it's in 1 Peter 3.15. Not a word about techniques, not a word about methods. You make sure that there's nothing that stands between you and God. No ongoing, defiant, sinful attitudes and behavior patterns. You make sure that there's nothing in your relationship with your neighbor that makes you impossible. It makes it impossible for you to speak over the garden wall as you hang out the clothes tomorrow morning and that you can't speak to him about the gospel because you've had a, an argument about the dog or about noise or about the shared wall you have. And so you can't say, we've got a Christmas party on, please come to our meeting. You, you have to avoid getting into the maelstrom of thinking, how can I speak to anyone about God when I feel as I do tonight? <laughs> You've got to avoid that for all your worth. You've got to have a conscience that's right with God. You've got to deal with your sin. You have to. Say, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. You say to your neighbor, oh, I'm sorry, we had that little argument about the wall. I'm sure we will do something now. How much will it cost to cement it and so on? Then you can have a a confidence when your conscience is all right to speak to them about the gospel. Three, grow in your grasp of the Christian faith. 
That's uh, another way in, in which you can bear witness. Um, I'm thinking of Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 28. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers. Our words have some thought behind them, don't they? I went to an exhibition in London uh, of William Tyndale. It was in the British Museum, and I wanted to see the Bibles and everything there. I had a, an hour or so, and I went along. And when I got there, I saw a woman I knew from Aberystwyth. And she was very forthright, and she was speaking to one of the uh, guards, I suppose it was. Uh, one of the custodians. And I heard her speaking to him quite fiercely. And she was saying to him, it's true because it's true because it's true. That's what she said to him. And he could have answered, no, it's false because it's false because it's false. It was a stalemate. That's not good witnessing. Weigh your answers. We're told to put on the belt of truth, aren't we? We put on the whole armor of God and the first thing you put on is the belt of truth and the last thing you pick up is the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. It's crucial. So, you know, just don't wait until January the 1st to have a, a resolution about reading the Bible every day. You, you know, tomorrow, tonight, read the Bible. Read books about the Bible. Wonderful books in the Christian bookshop. Give books at Christmas and read the books you're given, ponder the scripture, imbibe it, lay its truth to your heart, and marinate the truth of the Bible in your soul. Sit under the best ministry you can. Know what you believe and why you believe it. And grow in your familiarity with explaining to people who Jesus is and why he lived and why he died. Point four, become spirit-dependent Christians. Learn to trust in the Lord and instinctively to ask him for help. At every moment of crisis in our lives, Jesus once said, don't worry about what you're going to say when they call you before councils and synagogues. Don't become tense and anxious. Don't dry up. Don't try to have prepared answers for foreseeable questions. Because a situation will arise where you find yourself in uncharted territory. When you've got no prepared answers. No formulae. No uh, ready set of words. And you have to depend on God then, don't you? That God will help you. Say, Lord, help me now. Nehemiah brings the wine and he, he gives it to the, the king. And he looks a bit serious. And the king said, you okay? And he says, oh, it's just, you know, my people are in Jerusalem and they're finding it very hard. You're... Your king before you sent them back, and but they're having an awful time there. Before he said that, we are told, Nehemiah prayed. How do I answer the king now? This is an opportunity I've looked for. 
maybe the king can help. And the king did help and sent him safely all the way to Jerusalem with an armed guard to help the people. Depend on God to help you tomorrow, whenever. To speak or to be silent. What should I say, Lord? Help me. Fifthly, you testify about the Lord Jesus Christ with, in a special way. And Peter tells us what that way is to be. And it is with holy fear and meekness. Holy fear and gentleness. Fear, in other words, he's saying, you're serious about these things, aren't you? They matter to you, don't they? How great God is. The value of a human soul, more valuable than all the world. The preciousness of truth. You know, there's no place for flippancy. No room for lack of dignity. No lack of gravity, because God is so great. Truth is so important. The human soul is so significant. So Paul, when he went somewhere, he spoke, he says, with weakness and with fear and much trembling. That's how he spoke. You, you say you're nervous about bearing witness and, and you want to get rid of that nervousness. That nervousness is extremely powerful when you're not glib. When you speak from a heart and you are trembling as you say it. It's what God has enjoined as authentic Christian testimony. Fear. Speak with fear, he says. And then he says, uh, with meekness or gentleness. You know, you can never bear witness to someone if you feel superior to them. If it's a man begging for money. If it's uh, a tramp. A bearded old friend of mine came on to me yesterday and said nice things to me. Gave me a bottle of ginger beer that he'd bought. Spoke to me, was going into the bookshop and I knew there was a good man in the bookshop that could handle him. He'll, He'll never have a job. But he's got a soul. And in the day of resurrection, he'll be transformed if his faith is in Christ. I know better than that man. I'm not a a more noble man than him. Do I really believe what John Newton said? There but for the grace of God go I. If I start uh, adopting a, a, a position of moral superiority then my witnessing is paternalistic and condescending. And um, I forget that I'm a sinner speaking to a sinner. 
And I deserve nothing. And all I have is because of God's grace. If I forget that, my, my, the, the, the sharp edge of the sword of the Spirit is blunted. No, there's no need to be self-depreciating and self-disparaging. There's no need of a false modesty like that. But uh, know the truth about yourself. And this is the truth about yourself. In me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. All the good things about me have been given to me by the grace of God, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Without Jesus Christ, I can say I can do nothing. So, let me press on then and say, why aren't we to be ashamed of other Christians? That's what he says, doesn't he? He says, uh, uh, don't be ashamed of me, his God's servant. Don't be ashamed of me, he says. Well, people could look at Paul and feel, oh dear, I wish I wasn't identified with him because uh, people felt so ashamed of him. Um, he was shamed all the time, wasn't he? Second uh, Corinthians 11, he was in, in more imprisonments. He was beaten up. He was whipped. He was in danger of death. Five times he'd had 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. He'd spent a night and a day in the deep. He'd been in danger from robbers and his fellow countrymen and from Gentiles and in the city and in the wilderness and on the sea and with false brethren. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and this is what happens to you. Wouldn't people have a sense of pity and shame and embarrassment as they see all these negative things? A man becomes a Christian, you think, he has a Cadillac in his drive, he has a big house and he has another house he's bought in Florida and he visits it three times a year. It wasn't for Paul like that at all. But he didn't stop witnessing. The trouble came to him. He tells us that he was under obligation. He was a debtor to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, to explain to them again, we deserve eternal death because we're sinners, but God in his love has sent Jesus Christ to be our Lord and our Savior. You know, when was it that a student came to you and said to you, please tell me the message of the gospel? When? Whenever did that happen to you? Very, very, very rarely does it happen. The Jews' passion was signs. That's what they wanted. And the Greeks wanted wisdom. But Paul spoke just about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it was a stumbling block or it was foolishness. But he kept telling them that they needed forgiveness and God in his mercy had provided this wonderful person, Jesus Christ, to be a mediator with God, the righteous one. He wasn't ashamed of this message, though it resulted in him being stoned and dragged out of town half dead and whipping and prison. He was like Jesus. 
Jesus was abandoned by his friends. Jesus was falsely accused of blasphemy, beaten with rods, ridiculed, taunted, stripped of his clothes, tortured in public, made to look like a fool, mocked on the cross. You who save others, save yourself. Let Timothy remember that. Let's all remember the many attempts that were made to shame Jesus. And if we're like him, there will be attempts made to shame us too. A Christian life that's without shame is an inconsistent Christian life. What did Jesus do with all the shame that was heaped upon him? Well, you know, famous verse. Hebrews 12, the opening verses there. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. That's what we're told. And now he sits down at the right hand of God. He despised the shame. So when shame came and uh, threatened his heart and tempted him to abandon. Oh, I don't mean I and my father are one. I'm like him. He didn't say anything like that. He said to shame, shame, I despise you. I won't yield to you. I won't give in to you. You may do with me what you please in the short run. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to be intimidated by shame. I'm going to say what I know is true. I despise you, shame, he said. And what made him do that? For the joy that was set before him. He despised the shame. Shame was stripping away all earthly plaudits and comforts. His friends then gave way in abandonment. His reputation gave way in shaming slander. His, his decency gave way in shaming nakedness. His comfort gave way in shaming torture. So if his present supports were all being stripped away in shaming persecution, why didn't he capitulate? Why didn't he just implode into a little puddle of shame? Well, Hebrews 12 says he set his heart on, on the future. This light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for me a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, he said. I'm going to be set down at the right hand of God. He didn't sit down in Golgotha. There were no chairs on Calvary. There was a work that had to be done there for our redemption. But soon he would be sitting in God's presence. His humiliation all over. Shame for a brief moment. And then glory. He wasn't ashamed of being again with his God and Father. He was ashamed. He was saved from shame by what God was going to do. Going to raise him from the dead, vindicate him, exalt him. You said he was a blasphemer and a liar. He's my beloved son. I'm so pleased in him. So how do you overcome feelings of, of shame when you are patronized and belittled, when they say, ah, well, he's 20 and a student and lots of other students have influenced him and uh, let's see how it lasts. Well, you think about the the power of the gospel. It, It forgives us, the gospel message does, and it gives us everlasting joy. Nothing in the world can do that except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Judaism stops short of Jesus. 
Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they don't have a savior who can solve the separation from a holy God through sin. They can't offer sinners hope and forgiveness through faith in Christ by God's grace. Only one message can do it. That's the message that you believe and that you bear witness to and that you preach. Tozer and the famous American um, preacher. He was a pastor in, um, in Chicago for 30 years. One day he got in a bus in Chicago on a winter's day. The bus was full. And onto the bus came a big, a big man in a long coat with a buckle belt and a Christian um, badger on, on his coat and a handful of trucks. And he moved down the bus treading on toes and saying sorry and smiling at people and giving everybody a truck and people grumbling about it. Sorry, brother. Sorry, sir. Sorry, brother. Went through the bus. The muttering of the people gave everybody a tract on the bus. And finally, it was toes a stop. And so he got up to go and he pushed his way to the man and he shook his hand and he said to him, I'm one of those too. A man will come to Aberystwyth with a banner and it will have a, a verse on it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm one of those too. There I am. Thank you, brother. Say to him, thank you. The Lord bless you. Thank you for coming to Aberystwyth. And lastly, Paul here says, uh, join with every true Christian in suffering for the gospel. Here's the invitation then. All right. Here's the invitation to you tonight. Here's the gospel invitation. Join with us. And suffer with us. For the gospel. Start a new life where there'll be suffering for Jesus Christ. Jesus has said, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and, and be exceeding glad. Great is your reward in heaven. Jesus has told us. That's what's going to come to us. One thing about the future, if you live a consistent and God-fearing and God-loving life, there's going to be some suffering. All right. How do people shame us today for believing the gospel and sharing the gospel? It's not exactly as it was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, um, we were criticized because they didn't believe that the gospel was true. That's why we were criticized 50 years ago. Today they criticize us for claiming that there's such a reality as truth. In other words, today the shaming is not saying that we are wrong but to say that we are arrogant because we've got the truth. That's arrogance. No one can say that. 
That's what they say to us. Not that we have muddled thinking. We are pre-scientific. Not that. But that we have a bad attitude. And the greatest weapon of shaming today in the world of religious claims is the accusation we are intolerant. And we are mean-spirited. And we are egotistical. That's what they say about us. The most loving thing that you can do is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody. Because the Lord Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that's hugely comprehensive and all-embracive. That claim of his. No one comes to the Father but by me, he said. And so for the sake of love for him and love for these people... You, you are in debt to that person. You owe it to the person to say, well, this is what Jesus said, and this is what I believe. What our message is to 21st century man is very, very plain. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Lord, do bless your word to us tonight and help us to become much better witnesses to you and very unashamed that we are Christians, especially when we're the only one in our family the only one in our form in school, the only one in our tutorial group or living in the house or hall of residence we live in, only one in the street who's gone to church tonight. Help us meekly and humbly because we know it's by grace that we've been changed. Help us to be unashamed of the gospel always. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.